Hi, I'm Jason, the creator of The Grey Rooms. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2. Things are moving right along, and we are truly grateful to all of you for giving us, well, a listen. We would like to take this time to thank our patrons, for without them, we would not be able to do what we have done, and we wouldn't have been able to take the massive steps we have this season. We are truly grateful. If you would like to become a patron, jump on over to patreon.com forward slash Rooms today and find the tier that's right for you. Trust me, we have one. Now, this episode is brought to you by these wonderful patrons. Amy Nikolai, Arthur Unk, Ashley Enstrom, Austin Furman, Brooks Bigley, C.L. Bishop, Elizabeth Dowell, Isabel Diedrichs, Jason Porras, Jeremy Schaefer, Kathleen Clyde, Michael Velez, Patrick Stewart, Nightmare Rabbit, and Richard Holcomb. Thank you again so very much for your support. It is because of you that this has grown so very much. Without further ado, let's go ahead and get on with this episode. You awake. The elevator is small and cramped. There is a strange old man. He's mumbling. You hear a ding, and he forces you out. You're lost. You have no memory of this place. How did you get here? Where are you? It doesn't matter. Because now, you belong to the Grey Rooms. Season 2, Episode 2 Happy birthday, Uncle Sam! What did you do? Prolonged our hanging. This goddamn bird will not shut up! Oh, no! Colamsel, <laughs> you will hang by the neck until dead, here at Dangler's Branch. God loves you, boy. Not as much as Mama did. Ain't no woman on God's green earth gonna trade places with you. Especially on account of $47. You finally drop a prickly pear, Cole? My mama loved me more than anyone ever will in this world. I know you didn't kill that Potter boy on account of not knowing me. On account of the feathers, chickadee. 
Yeah. Just give me your knife and let me cut this noose off. But why don't you just loosen the knot? Oh. I want to wonder where he went, but I knew. A monster rides to Whispering Oaks. A broken boy. An angry man. A cold man who once invited death, but now escorted it. Once half-hearted, now none. You know how it is. Wasn't a very good guy, was he? He could have been. I... I wanted to help him. I wanted to change his mind so bad. So did another woman, eh? Didn't quite work out so well. Doesn't ever really work out so well in the grey rooms. Why? Why is it always murder and destruction? Why? Oh, well, you see, it's uh, interesting. It's interesting to see people in these rooms die? Interesting to see how you react from a myth, I think. Look, I'm just glad it's not me getting hanged, eaten by a wolf or stabbed. You know how it is. Time to move along now, miss. Go and get yourself a nice shiny key and all that. The guy in the room. I... I was him. I experienced all of his thoughts. But... I also heard what the bird was thinking. Was I in their bodies? Was this some kind of dream? I don't understand any of this. Where the hell am I? Ah, Samantha. You sound frustrated. Didn't enjoy your room. No, I didn't die, or did I? I just kind of ceased to be. Oh, you died. One way or another, the Grey Rooms finds a way to kill you. You know why, Samantha. 
because you're cruel, sick, and enjoy doing it. No, because you are horrible. Remember what you called me earlier? You told me I was going to die. It was the truth. Did you want me to lie? You're horrible. All your kind are. Men, women, killers, liars, cannibals, the undead. They hurt an infinite amount of people before they died. And then they came here. Killers, liars, cannibals? They hurt people before they died. Then they came here. Are you suggesting that I'm in hell? I'm suggesting that you're getting what you deserve. And you know what's extremely frustrating to me, Samantha? You don't even know what you did. I don't remember. Well, maybe you should sit by the fountain and think about it. Think about who you hurt during your life. And when you're done, you can choose a new room. And see what kills you next. If I pick the right room, I won't have to. An optimist. Hmm. A realist. Anyway, I have things to do. Bye, Bob. Don't forget to come back for your room. If you don't, I get to pick one for you. Those are always interesting. See you later, Sam. <laughs> he called me the monster? Yeah, right. These people are a bunch of freaks and I need to get out of here. <sighs> My experience in that Wild West thing was weird. It beat the hell out of the guy. But I don't seem like I'm any worse for the wear. <sighs> I can't go out the main door because that psycho with the chainsaws out there. I can... Holy shit! He's... He's watching me! He's watching me through the damn window! Motioning for me to join him! Jesus, where the hell am I? They call me Samantha Winters. Is that really my name? Who am I? Horrible. That's what he said. Am I? No, no, I couldn't be. I mean, I don't feel like I did bad things. But who am I? Why can't I remember? Come on, Samantha. Think. Think. Think.
Oh, look at this, B. This is clearly an amateur's work, but do you see what they're trying to do, love? I think they forgot to paint a Starbucks. The juxtaposition of the expressive nature of the painting's subject is reminiscent of the muted tones that are common in pop art from the turn of the century. Guys like Jackson Pollock or, uh, or Rembrandt. Uh, let it go, Sam. Just let it. Excuse me, sir. I'm the artist of this painting. Hi. It's a good attempt. I suggest you continue. Look, your flashy black turtleneck aside, neither of the artists that you mentioned are pop artists. Neither are known for their muted tones. Jackson Pollock was a neoplasticist, and Rembrandt was a womanizer. You don't know shit about what you're talking about. I suggest you go to Starbucks, like your lady friend clearly wants. You don't know shit about what you're talking about, kid. I'm gonna have a word with your- She kicked your ass, Alex. Just shut up. And I do want Starbucks. How about you tell me everything over there? Oh, and remember that dress I liked? You think we can pick it up later? Fine, but... But honey, I was fine! There's also a really hot necklace that I saw at the mall. We totally need to get that too. Oh, look over there in the window. Look at those strappy cute sandals. Savage. I hate those kinds of people. Trying to act like they know what they're talking about. Yep. But there's a lot of people here tonight that love your work. More than some artists that just splatter shit all over the place. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Your parents? They didn't show up, did they? No. I'm gonna call them. Maybe something happened. Sam, come on. You know they just didn't- Jackie, just... I gotta try. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, I know. Hello. Dad! Oh, man. I thought you and Mom got in a car accident or something. You guys okay? What? Oh, of course we're okay. Your, your mother just got home from work. Oh. Thank God. <laughs> so, you guys are coming then? Uh, what? Coming where? Dad, it's the art gallery. My art is displayed. I mean, not just mine, but you know, this is important. People are looking and discussing my work. It's actually really exciting. No, it's late. Like I said, your mother just got home. We're gonna get something to eat. <laughs> Honestly, Samantha, I thought your call was about something important. I thought you were in trouble. This is important. This is what I want to do with the rest of my life, Dad. I'm sorry to hear that. You know why you can go to the school and goof around? Because your mother and I worked hard to pay for it. It's a shame you can't do that for your kids someday when you don't have a job after your art degree and end up working at some clothing store or something. That's not going to happen, Dad. That's what I'm trying to show you. People really love my art, uh, and... Your mother.
mom agrees with me. You're wasting our money. This is what we have worked for. To give you an important future. But instead you're just hurt. Sam. Sam? Come on. Sam! Hey! You... You were right. They... They don't understand me. And they don't want to. And... Here, Sam. I'm here for you, okay? I remember that day. Remembering hurts. Alright, I remembered something. You happy? Oh, and what was that? None of your business. Must have been something good. Yeah. Ready to pick a room, then? No, but you said I had to, right? You know, you're different than the usual customers. They usually whine and cry and complain about it. You just seem to accept it. It's not like I have anything better to do. I can't leave. Might as well bother you and Todd. Bother us? Well, let's take a look at the book, shall we? I have a wonderful tale about a princess that leaves her castle looking for a charming prince. And I have a story about a man who ends up in the hospital. Any thoughts? <laughs> I'm sure the prince ends up doing unthinkable things to her. You can forget it. I'll stick with the hospital story. Maybe he's a nice prince. He's not. So you say. All right then. Your room is room 1872. It's called Disconnect. Can I have your signature, please? Why do we need to do this? There aren't even any other names on here. Humor me. Fine. I guess I'll see you when I'm back. Not if you picked the right room. There aren't any right rooms. I mean, come on. I don't know what's going on, but I know that. Think what you will, Samantha. Picked another door, have you, miss? You're a prisoner here too, aren't you? I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, okay. You're stuck here too. If you want to get out, you'll cut a deal with me and help me figure this out. You think you can escape? I know I can. How do you know that? I just... When I have proof, 
I'll show you. Are you in? Oh, good luck, miss. It's time to go up. I hope you've picked a more suitable room to your liking. The harsh red lines on the bedside clock warn me I only have one hour before I have to get up for work. Here I am again, rigid and contorted in a way that suggests I don't want to sleep. My head is on the pillow, but it isn't resting. I'm no longer comfortable. And I shift position and repeat the pattern, praying for sleep before the compulsive need to adjust inevitably sweeps over me again. Ellie sleeps so soundly. Her breathing is rhythmic and resentment-inducing. I can only recall the first few lines of my pitch. Everyone will be there. It's a big one. Could set me up for life. I can't bullshit through this one. No pressure. Ellie has everything mapped out. New house, private school for the kids, and little beach house on the coast. My eyes squelch like marshy ground as the balls of my hands bring a mixture of glorious relief and inevitable soreness. Black smudges appear against the grayness of the diluted night as I release my hands and push myself from the deceitful softness of the bed. Dirty yellow light from the halogen outside spills through the side of the curtain, and I momentarily consider the possibility humans may eventually evolve to require no sleep at all. I tiptoe to the bathroom, being careful to avoid the squeaky floorboard, even though it would most likely not disturb. The devastation of countless sleepless nights stares back at me when I switch the light on, and it's even worse than I thought. My skin is pale and emphasizes the darkness under my sunken eyes. I look like a clown with charcoal makeup. My eyes resemble an old yellowing road atlas with branches of red lines that no longer reach their destination. My arms don't feel like my own as I reach for the cabinet door. As I squeeze out an eye drop, my wife lets out a snort. I wonder how anyone could sleep so deeply that even when their body erupts in such a way, steady breathing follows as though nothing has occurred. The envy burns again, and I'm tempted to bang on the wall to show the injustice. Nobody understands this affliction that steals my sleep. My mind is a melting pot of stress and worry that does not allow for luxuries such as relaxation. I imagine myself stood in the boardroom wearing my tired face, the puffy eyes, and sallow skin further emphasized by the sharp lines of the suit. I'm watching myself choke as I float helplessly above. It's a miracle that I evaded exposure for so long. The twitch in my eye has already started, more violently than normal. My skin sings with irritation and I lift my heavy arms and claw at the maddening patches of itch with bitten down fingernails. I've always been a light sleeper, but this last year feels like a montage of out-of-body experiences, as though I'm a spectator in my own unspectacular destruction. At work, I was both admired and despised for my work ethos and long nights in the office. But recently, 
The work I've been turning in is patchy and half-hearted. I can't survive on reputation. Voices swim in and out during meetings, and I nod and hope nobody asks for opinion. I can't bear anyone's company for more than five minutes without wanting to stab them in the eye. I am here, but not. A physical shell whose bark has left. At home, I'm the same. My kids have given up on me, and all I hear all day is the word mummy. Ellie has given up on me, too. I see it in her eyes. I have exhausted her with my own insomnia. I've seen a hypnotist, a therapist, been on sleeping pills, tried alcohol, and even cannabis, but it seems like every new gimmick I attempt puts further distance between myself and the sleeping state. I can't find a way back. I return to the bedroom with no intention of getting back into bed. There's someone lying next to my wife. My pulse quickens and the bizarreness of that scene takes a while to settle in. For a moment I assume I'm dreaming, but that would mean I'm asleep. I walk over to the edge of the bed and it's myself that I see nestled between the soft blankets. My eyes are closed and I look peaceful. Asleep. I must be dreaming. I might be okay for the pitch after all. Even a couple of hours would give me a shot. I consider what a weird dream it is. Of all the places I could be, I'm here in our bedroom watching myself sleep. Goose pimples tingle across my already sensitive skin as I reflect on the possibility of a breakthrough. I'm almost afraid to move. I don't want to overstimulate and bring myself out of this deep sleep. I reach out slowly to gently touch the top of my head, but my hand passes through. <laughs> I laugh out loud at the limitations of this absurd dream. As I stand here bent over my physical form, I feel so intensely present. The clock moves forward a minute as if to stamp the intricacy of the experience, and then I hear the just-after-four-o'clock slam of the car door across the road. I watch the two of us in bed for some time. We lie as far apart as possible. Often in the old days we would wake up a sweaty mass as though melding into one. I wonder when that stopped. When we gave up. In our youth, we were ignorantly adamant that we were different from the rest. We mocked people that wanted the bigger house, the nice car, the 2.4 children. And now we're part of the game. And it's tearing us apart. Ellie used to be so passionate about her painting. And, and I used to write until the early hours. It was all we seemed to need back then. And then we got sucked in like everyone else. Ellie has bought into it in a big way and we struggle to keep pace with our so-called friends. It's exhausting, but ironically, insomnia-inducing. I turn my attention to myself and feel utter loathing for the weak man I've become. My face tells the tale of a beaten man, gray and exhausted, and in the oversized antique bed, I look as vulnerable as a child. I want the old us back, how we used to be when nothing else mattered, 
when we had passion and when life was not about collecting things. I'm lost in thought for some time and only shaken out of it by the sound of the alarm clock. Over an hour has passed in my melancholy state. John. There's no reaction from my physical self and I do not feel any pull towards consciousness. My chest tightens. There's no way I could sleep through this. Ellie puts a hand on my shoulder and gives a gentle shove, but I feel nothing. And there's no sign this gesture is going to wake me. The alarm continues with its annoying tune, and Ellie reaches over impatiently and switches it off. Come on, John. It's your big day today. I know. I reply. John. I'm suddenly very apprehensive about how surreal this situation is. Did you take a pill? She doesn't wait for a response and walks to the bathroom and sits down on the toilet. Wake, Wake up! I scream in my ear. I have a pitch to deliver in less than two hours, and if I don't do it, that dickhead Harvey will. With eyes closed tightly, I imagine myself waking up, but it feels futile. The process should be automatic. I don't have a blueprint on how to get back. She comes back into the room wearing the familiar frown. Are you ignoring me, John? John! The shriek of her voice sends my eye twitching again. Hello, anxiety, my old friend. Wake up, you idiot! I scream. This isn't funny, John. Wake up. My physical form shows no signs of waking, and I feel no draw back into the real world. I grab a hold of skin under my arm and pinch it hard. It hurts, a lot, but again, there's no sign of a reaction. Ellie starts to shake me, quite vigorously, and I watch my head stupidly lollop around on the pillow. A little bit of saliva drops down the side of my mouth, but it's as though nobody's home. She coils her hand back to slap me, and I close my eyes and brace myself for impact. But nothing comes. When I open my eyes, I see the red mark on the cheek of my physical self. And the detachment scares me. If this isn't a dream, perhaps I'm dead. Instinctively, I want to hug my children, Tom and Anne, and tell them I'm sorry. The last words I spat down at them were to be quiet and go watch TV. If I'm dead, they will grow up to remember me as a nasty and short-tempered man. This is not who I am or aspire to be. But insomnia has stolen my identity. My beautiful children. I have to get back and put this right. Ellie reaches for my pulse and at the same time I put my head to my chest and relief kicks in as I hear and feel my heart continuing to do its job. Ellie picks up the phone and a certain satisfaction kicks in as I sense the anguish. The worry lines age her immediately and I see weakness, a vulnerable side that rarely shows its face. I want to hold her and tell her I'll do better. Perhaps she does still care. I, I think I need an ambulance. My husband won't wake up. There's an urgency in her voice. I don't think the beach house is on her mind. At least I hope not. Breathing fine's slow, but the pulse is there. Her eyes are getting moist. She looks like she may cry. 
cry, but nothing. Please come. There it is, a solitary tear rolling down her cheek. I watch her announce our address over the phone, and in an instant she's back to reliable and professional Ellie. The lawyer in her is taking over again, and vulnerability is gone. It was good to see that side of her, albeit briefly. She puts the phone down and places her hand on my cheek. Come on, John. Time to wake up now. I'm trying, Ellie. She pushes herself from the bed, opens her wardrobe, and throws some clothes into a nearby chair. The phone is nestled into her neck as she slips on her jeans and informs the office she won't be in today. Work. I almost forgot. Suddenly I find myself running through my pitch, and it has all come back to me. I feel alert, present, and I know I could pull it off. Ethan, my boss, will soon text to make sure that I get in early. I need to get back. Come on, wake up for God's sake! I watch her dress so efficiently, and then she checks on me again. Still sleeping. The hospital is only a few minutes away. Ellie insisted on being central in the bustle of the city madness. We stare out the window side by side and wait for the ambulance to arrive. I have no idea what's going to happen next. It arrives without sirens, still early enough for traffic to be sparse. Two men step out with urgency and they open the rear doors and retrieve a stretcher. It's all happening so fast, I want to wake up. Ellie rushes downstairs and I'm left in the company of my sleeping self. I hear the whistle of the birds outside and I can see the trees rustle in the breeze. A plastic bag journeys erratically from one side of the road to the other and adds to the realism of the moment. Everything feels too tangible to be a dream. Christ, wake up! I scream. I close my eyes and try to come back once more, but... I feel too present. The front door opens, followed by the march of feet up the stairs. I try once more, but it's no good. It's as if I have disconnected. Yeah, the alarm went off, and it didn't wake him up. So I said his name a couple times, and I tried to shake him. My wife answers their questions. Her tired and monotone descriptions indicate it's the same questions asked on the phone. Would kick in and he'd hear it, um, but he, he just didn't get up, and so I thought maybe he'd taken a pill. So I I watch as they carry my body away. Hey, mom. Um. Yeah. No, it. It's John. He's. In the background, I can hear Ellie talking to her mom, asking her to come and look after the kids. He won't wake up, and I don't know why, so there's an ambulance, and I... Ellie's mom is only five minutes away. Can you, can you come watch the kids? Another perk of being central. At least today. I follow Ellie and the men carrying my stretchered body through the front door. The breeze feels incredibly real, and for a moment I kid myself the sensation of the cool prickle on my skin might bring me back, but 
Then I see the faded red mark on my cheek from where Ellie let rip and the thoughts fade quickly. Our neighbor, Joan, has come outside to see what's going on. I flicker the middle finger and utter nosy old bag as I step into the van behind myself. My body is rigid with panic and I watch our street disappear through the ambulance window. This is as real as it gets. The journey to the hospital is short and it isn't long before they wheel my body out of the ambulance. The sound of approaching sirens can be heard and again, I optimistically hope the shrill will bring me back from whatever this is. As we make our way through the doors, I turn around to see the paramedics pull a body from the ambulance. And even from a distance, I can see the blood and the ripped clothing, the head still encased in the helmet. I feel lightheaded. My tick is going crazy. The clinical decor of the hospital is grounding, yet I'm struggling to keep the pace. Everything is happening so quickly, and all I could think about is Tom and Anne and how much I've let them down. I wonder if they'll be worried about me, if they care at all about the grumpy train wreck of a father I've become. The doctor gives me the once-over and I'm taken to a room full of machines. He makes some notes before leaving and I watch as the nurse places tubes in my arm and connects me to multiple contraptions. I feel nothing. Ellie holds my hand. I can't remember the last time she did. Life's... Life seems too fast for that. She looks frail again, off guard. I wish I could feel her touch. I find this scene difficult to watch and I can't get enough air in as the seriousness of the situation feels suffocating. I'm struggling to maintain the conviction that I'll soon wake up in bed next to Ellie. Every minute I'm out of my body, it feels as though the distance back to it is growing. The serious faces, the frowns, the chin stroking, the beeps from the machine and announcements on the speaker system all add to the growing sense of dread. I need someone to come and sort me out. Where's the doctor gone? Why isn't anyone helping me? I run out of the room into the corridor and scream, Where are all the fucking doctors? Of course there's no reaction. I think that might be my fault, champ. The unexpected reply belatedly echoes down the corridor. There are a couple of nurses urgently marching from one room to another and a patient pushing their bag on a pole. An electrician is changing one of the lights in the ceiling and on the other side of the ladder stands a guy wearing a motorcycle helmet and ripped leathers. He's holding his right hand in the air as if we're old friends with prearrangement to meet. He starts walking over. I say walk, but it's more of a swagger, as though he hasn't a care in the world. My legs feel weak, but I make my way towards him. 
I wonder how he can see me, but I'm more curious as to know how he could be here when he was so obviously broken and laid out on a stretcher when I saw him outside. Luke, he says as he holds out his hand. He seems unmarked, contrary to the state of his clothing. I'm dying, he says in an eerily matter-of-fact tone. I'm John, I reply and hold up my hand just as he moves his away. The doctors are trying to bring me back. But it's too late, and I think they know it too, he says. I suppose I should offer some consolation, but I can only think about my own fate. Am I dying too? What's your story? He asks as he removes his helmet. And how can you see me? I'm asleep, I reply. He looks at me puzzled for a moment and then smiles and says, My body is smashed up. And my brain is bleeding. I'm on my way to the next one, and I doubt it will be pretty. And you say you're asleep? His face is full of deep cavernous lines, and his nose is twisted and out of shape. It tells the story of a hard life. There are cuts to his face that would be hard to replicate with a handheld razor, but no sign of major head trauma. I can't wake up. I've tried, but I think I'm in a coma or something. I don't know. We're waiting for the doctors. He looks at me and smiles. What are the odds? This line sounds strange to me and triggers my instincts to high alert. What do you mean? I just mean it's a bizarre situation. The two of us talking here like this, but our bodies lie elsewhere. He's right, of course. It is a strange situation. But my gut instincts tell me to get away from this man as quickly as possible. We have nothing in common apart from our misfortune, and I instantly decided he wasn't friend material from the way he initially swaggered over. Are you married? Kids? He asks. I am. And I, I should be getting back to her. And me. He is still smiling, and I find it rather unsettling. There, there's no acknowledgement that lets me go easily, just an awkward pause as he continues to study my face. I'm sure he knows how uncomfortable he's making me feel. I start to back away and the words feel weak when they leave my lips. I'm truly sorry about your circumstance. Perhaps I'll fix you, uh, uh, bring you back. Another awkward silence as I continue my polite retreat. The thing is, John, I don't really want to come back. Not as him anyway. Luke! There's a whole heap of trouble waiting for him. The immediate reference to himself in third party escalates my fear. His smile fades and he takes a step forward. So why can't you just climb back inside, friend? It's a good question, but I don't want to discuss this with him. It's a question I've asked myself many times over the past few hours, and the only conclusion I could draw is that I've forgotten how to. I feel lost in limbo between wakefulness and sleep, and the disconnection is terrifying. Uh, I, I have to get back, Luke. Uh, good luck. I say as I turn, walk, and then begin to run. It's a bizarre situation to experience so much panic without feeling any elevated energy in those around. The, the nurses continue their daily chores, and the patients are wandering around bored and lonely. I instinctively want to call out for help, but I know it'll do me no good. My feet noiselessly stomp on the ground and I inhale the disinfectant-laced air as I weave in and out of objects that I could most likely run straight through. 
I check behind and he's not there. But I don't stop running. I want to put as much distance between us as possible. It wouldn't work. It can't be as simple as that. Finally, I reach the room and everything is as I left it. And Ellie still has hold of my hand. My body is rigid with fear and anger. I haven't been on my game, but I don't deserve this. I want another chance to do better, to be happier. I want to sit down with her and tell her everything I was too afraid to before. We could reset, start again, get back to what's important. Close my eyes and imagine myself floating through a black chasm toward the light. It seems to be working, and slowly the tension begins to drain from my body. I'm beginning to feel weightless and far removed from the clinical surrounds of the hospital. The sounds from the machines fade, and voices begin to echo around me. And as I reach toward the light, I see my wife beckoning me to keep going. I'm almost there, and I'm beginning to feel her delicate hands on mine and the gentle pressure. I hear Ellie scream from impossibly far away. He, he moved. Nurse! So close to the light. I stretch out my arm, and I'm already preparing for the transition back to my physical self. And then suddenly, I'm frozen. Suspended in darkness. I feel something tight around my throat and then I begin the free fall back into nothingness. I can hardly get air as I open my eyes and I know the two hands around my neck belong to Luke. The smell of cheap aftershave and leather permeates the air. I grab his wrists and try to pry them away, but I have no strength. I'm weak and tired. I can already feel my body shutting down. I was so close. <laughs> I hear voices and commotion as I begin to come around. Momentarily, I convince myself I'm in the hospital bed and finally awakening from this nightmare. But I'm not. I'm lying on the floor where Luke left me after choking me out. The nurses try to convince my wife to make me stay, but Luke is already familiarizing himself with my body as he slips on my pants and shirt. She's insisting that more tests are needed, but he grabs Ellie's hand and heads for the door. As he's about to push through, he stops and turns to Ellie and asks her for a pen. She looks at him oddly, but obliges. He picks up the newspaper from the table and looks up thoughtfully for a moment before scribbling something and throwing the paper on the bed. And then they're gone. I'm alone. More alone than I've ever been, and more alone than anyone should ever be. I'm a spectator once again, but even more so now. The thought is unbearable. I can't be an audience in my own life. My only escape lies in a room somewhere in this hospital. I hope I'm not too late. 
and I pray that I could slip into the broken body and drift peacefully away. On my way out of the room, I glance at the writing scrawled across the newspaper. <laughs> you snooze, you lose. Disconnect. Written by Mark Taus. Performed by Michael Rigg as John, Aaron King as Ellie, and Jason Wilson as Luke. The Samantha Winters episode was written by Brian Black and performed by Sarah Thomas as Samantha Winters, Graham Rowett as Bob, and as Alexander, Alistair Mackey as Todd, Paul Abisi as Samantha's dad, Allison Brandt as Jackie, and Christina Wilson as Beatrice. She said her boyfriend called her B, for whatever that means. Musical composition for both episodes was by J.M. Scherf. Audio engineering and sound design was by me, Jason Wilson. Episode artwork was by Cassie Partit. Social media and Patreon support was by Brooks Bigley. Once again, another episode of season two of The Grey Rooms is in the books. We are always so excited to release these for your enjoyment. We always strive to deliver the best for you. And we also have an Instagram for you to check out. So jump on over and check it out by searching at The Grey Rooms Pod on Instagram, as well as other social media, which the links will be provided in the show notes below. We would also like to mention our Patreon. We are able to make big steps this season and support our growth, but this wouldn't be possible without our wonderful patrons. If you would like more information on our Patreon tiers, please head over to patreon.com forward slash the gray rooms. Link is also in the show notes as well. Stop in and find the right tier for you. Again, we appreciate your time and we look forward to what the rest of this season has to offer. Till then, we'll see you in two weeks.